And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Yeah, Charlie, when we started this show, we had a thought of we're going to go through the second week of June. So we've got this show next week, and we'll put the wraps on this year's version of Out of Left Field for the baseball version. Charlie, let's talk a little bit about Major League Baseball. We haven't talked a whole lot about Major League Baseball, and in the show today, we've got Jonathan Holder and Jeff Brantley. Well, there's a couple of guys right there who have been very good at their trade on the back half of ball games. Remind me, who does Jonathan Holder play for? <laughs> Is it the 27-time uh, world champion New York Yankees? And here's the thing. I've, I've become a Yankees fan. We watch the Yankees just about every night when, when they're playing. And so it's not as bad now to listen to you as it has <laughs> been in the past. Now, I grew up a Cubs fan, so anyway. Uh, and we talked to – to Chris Young, we got that ticket link now with uh, with Wrigley Field. Oh, Wrigley Field, Yankee Stadium. You know what I love about seeing Jonathan Holder play for the Yankees? I love seeing any Mississippi State player play for the Yankees. But I love the fact that he's been having success. Yeah. You know, it is very difficult to come up and have success as a pitcher or a position player, for that matter, in Yankee Stadium. The demands are there. The media is all over you. And as Reggie Jackson used to say, pinstripes are heavy. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a burden to play yes. in one of those environments. You know, you go to Kansas City, you go out to Arlington, Texas, maybe it's a little different animal, certainly a different animal than it is played in the Big Apple. Major League Baseball right now going through some craziness with their negotiations. Mm-hmm. If you today had to put a percentage on Major League Baseball being played this year, what would your percentage be? I think there's a 65% chance that they're going to play. I think the word that's kind of out right now is it's unlikely, less likely today than it's ever been. But ultimately, look, we're dealing with a sport who has shown that they are willing to let labor strife ruin a season. 1994 comes to mind. But you just have to think that sooner or later – these guys want a paycheck just like you and I do, and that somebody's going to decide, let's play ball. Here's the thing about 1994. It took at least five years for the league to get back after that. Now, all of a sudden, you've had the COVID-19 issue going on. You haven't had sports. This is an opportunity for Major League Baseball to kind of thrust itself into the forefront, and now all of a sudden you start talking about contract negotiations and whatnot, labor unions. Who takes the biggest hit, the players or the owners? The sport as a whole, you know, yes, yeah. I suppose the answer. And here's why. Look what's happening to minor league baseball. Minor league baseball players are being released left and right. Before COVID-19, there were talks about getting rid of minor league teams. You go into Asheville, North Carolina. You go into Hickory, North Carolina. You go to Montgomery. All these places, the Savannah Sand Nats, I mean, all these places where minor league baseball has been a part of the fabric of the community for years and years and years, it was already threatened. And now with this, it's going to dry up if they do not find a way to get back playing, take advantage of some clear airspace, man. People are dying for some television. Get your product in front of them and try to save this game, at least at the level we know it. You know, a lot of major league teams have said, hey, we're going to pay our minor leaguers for X amount of time. But earlier this week, we saw where an agent has said he's going to pay his minor leaguer, Scott Boris. What's your original thought of Scott Boris, the super agent, saying, I'm going to pay my minor leaguers? You know, it's interesting because my original thought was to say, what a kind gesture. 
What a nice thing for Scott Morris to do, to come in and make sure his guys in the minor leagues aren't going to go without a paycheck. And then it occurred to me that nothing that Scott Boris does is a kind gesture. Everything is calculated. You know what that is? That's Marketing. advertising. That is a, that's some of the best down payment he's going to pay on the superstars of years to come because he's saying, when things go bad, I got your back. And it's a drop in the bucket for him, but it's going to look really good. And for about 30 seconds, I was fooled. So later in the show, we have Jonathan Holder coming up next. We'll talk to Jonathan. We'll also talk to Jeff Brantley, of course, played his state in the mid-1980s, was a reliever now with the Cincinnati Reds on their broadcast team. Of course, our thanks to our good friends at Farm Bureau. Go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com. If you're thinking about changing your insurance, if you're with another provider, and if you're a Farm Bureau customer right now, you know that you have the best customer service out there, period, of disaster strikes. You've got some folks in every community and every county in the state of Mississippi that's willing to help you get back on your feet. So go with the home team at Farm Bureau. So when we come back, we'll talk to Jonathan Holder on our Look Back segment brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. This is Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's time now for a look-back segment in Bulldog history, brought to you by our good friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing, made right here in the state of Mississippi. You can go by Country Meat Packers on Highway 49 in Florence. They've got a great butcher shop, all kind of goodies to put on the grill. And while you're there, make sure you load up on the best sausage known to man. You can get the original, the jalapeno cheddar, the green onion, the Cajun, my favorite, the pork and pineapple. It's all made with the leanest pork and, most importantly, it just tastes good. So go by and see Henry Cooper and the gang at Country Pleasing and tell them that Bart and Charlie sent you. Well, as we said, it's time to look back in Bulldog history, and today we're talking with former Bulldog and current member of the New York Yankees, Jonathan Holt. Well, Jonathan, I know it's been crazy for you to have a lot of time on your hand, but I'm guessing you've been down at Gulfport doing a lot of fishing. How you doing? Man, I'm doing all right. Thank you. Uh, been doing a lot of fishing, hanging out, enjoying the beautiful weather down here on the Gulf Coast, and, uh, you know, staying baseball ready. We talked to Butch and Lane a few weeks ago, and we were talking in depth about a bunch of different guys, and Butch brought your name up, and he said, I always tell the story of Jonathan Holder, and coming in as a freshman from Gulfport High School, you go through the fall practice, and then you know you're you're trying to play the outfield, you're trying to work as a pitcher. What was it like that freshman year coming in, and all of a sudden you're kind of thrown to the wolves, and you know playing that fall first fall here at Startville? Uh, I think it boils down to I was trying to do too much. I was trying to be. Uh, good at, at too many different things, trying to hit, play first, play left field, pitch. And, you know, I was not really making any progress anywhere and, and getting better at anything. So, you know, I give all my credit to Butch. He sat me down and told me that he thought I could have a career in pitching. And uh, so I, I decided to focus on that. And that's, you know, when everything started happening. Talking with Jonathan Holder. And, Jonathan, sometimes when you're an 18-year-old kid, and we see it every year, Sometimes when they face adversity for the first time, it kind of kicks them in the teeth and they don't know how to react. 
when I look back at 2012, that fall of 2011, Butch was telling the story about, hey, we, we talked to Jonathan about possibility of redshirting. Maybe maybe let's take a look at possibly going to a junior college or you know, something like that. But he said your determination in working through that winter before you came back in January is what really separated you, what really made him think that this guy has a chance to be something special do you remember what that was like and saying, you know what, I'm not going to give in, I'm not going to redshirt, and I'm going to go be a big-time closer? Man, yeah, and I know I would venture to say over 95% of people uh, that come in as freshmen that, that do get kicked in the teeth, they go through that. It's kind of like step up or get out type mentality. It's, you either got to come up with the game and, and uh, learn how to get better and learn how to make a spot for yourself or, you know, somebody else is going to do it. Uh, and I remember Butch being the guy mainly that just told me, you know, how my mentality really should be and that I, he thought I was good enough to play there. I just needed to make that next step. And so, you know, I had so much confidence in, in him and Coach Cohen and Mingione and everybody there that had so much confidence in me. And I really think – uh they really showed me that confidence, and so I was able to take it upon myself and, uh, you know, make myself a spot. Well, Jonathan, you go back and look at 2012, I'd say you did a little more than make yourself a spot. You just kind of took over the position, and you think about how that year played out, you know, 24 appearances, nine saves, and one earned run that entire freshman year. How did your mindset change going through that freshman year from the beginning to the end where you talk about – trying to earn a spot to all of a sudden setting records uh, on the mound? You know, my mindset at the time didn't change. I was just I was just so focused. Our motto at the time was one pitch at a time. And I swear, I think I bought into it so much that I couldn't hear any noise around me. I couldn't see any of the articles, anything record-wise. I couldn't see any of that. All I was focused on was making that next pitch. And that's, that's why I give so much credit to those coaches that year that they really drove that in our minds. And I think everybody on the team you could ask that had success that year uh, was so focused just on the next pitch, and that's why we were good. And then in 2013, we entered that season. You know, we won the SEC championship, the tournament championship in 12. Kind of had a tough go of it down in Tallahassee to end the season. But then everybody felt really good about 13. And you had so much success in 2012. Then all of a sudden in 2013, we talk about mindset and a change of mindset. It was almost like a different personality of Jonathan Holder. The long hair. You had, you know, Johnny Cash. You were splitting time with Caleb a little bit in your freshman year. Now you're going to be the guy. Did the mindset change at all because you knew that you were the guy? Yeah, I would say that. I, I had to adjust to that, though, um, you know, coming into that, that fall and them saying, look, the closer role is yours. You just got to be ready and be prepared every game. You know, I, I just tried to stay humble and stay within myself and, you know, work just like I was working the previous year and the years before that. Just keep working hard and focus on that one pitch. And uh, I think that's what got me through that year. Jonathan, we talk all the time about kind of when players – have a change and we've kind of talked about your development I look back at 2013 and we start off I think it was 17 and 0 and then kind of hit a little bit of a lull and then somewhere towards the end just seemed to catch fire and really develop an identity as a team 
Bart and I talk about it all the time and kind of look at that Sunday at Ole Miss maybe. Where did you see Mississippi State's kind of season turning in 13? But 13, I don't exactly remember when the turnaround was. I knew we were struggling for a little bit. But we, we all knew that we were good. So, you know, there was no question about it. It seemed like that team kind of started loosening up a little bit towards the end. Sometimes, you know, we talk about, you know, John Cohen, who was this guy who was wanted everybody kind of buttoned up and tied. It looked like that team just at some point just kind of won the confidence of the coaches and seemed to just start having more fun playing baseball. No doubt, man. And I know we had so much – we were run like a professional baseball team. Uh, all our guys were super self-accountable and the coaches didn't really have to manage us that much even during the games I mean we were calling our own pitches and we were we were learning ourselves and the catchers were amazing that year and they just we just kind of like clicked man that was a fun run has anyone in the New York Yankee organization made fun of you about that uh, video that you guys made uh, yeah, once or twice a week, I have to say. <laughs> hey, that's that's what's funny. And I look back at that team, Jonathan. We're talking to Jonathan Holder, closer at Mississippi State 2012-2014, now with the New York Yankees. These guys were so close on that team. And, and we talked to Adam Fraser and Wes Ray a few weeks ago about that. And it, it just seemed like you guys as a group, as a collective group, you talk about the self-accountability. There were so many guys on that team that were self-starters. And I look and see what was so special about that team. One, we had a lot of talent. But two, you had some guys that when they stepped across the lines, they wanted to cut your throat. As far as the guys, the camaraderie of the team, have you ever been on a team that was as close as that one? Man, no, and I don't know if I ever could. I mean, I still keep up with these guys. We talk almost every day. I mean, we're we're in group messages, and we're we're all so close. And I mean, Wes lives down here with me, and we fish and we hang out all the time. It's just, man, that really created a a bunch of brothers that we love hanging out. We we find a couple times a year that we can all get together and you know reminisce on that stuff. Your junior year, you're drafted and make the election to go pro. Obviously, not a not a lot of guys are going to have that chance this year. Certainly, less than when you came out. Did you right. feel the weight of the draft kind of looming over you throughout your junior season? You know, I never did. Uh, I was never projected to be a high draft pick, so I think that helped me to not have that hanging over my head. Uh, I just I knew that if I if I was going to have a chance, I had to play good, but other than that, we were, man, again, the coaches did such a good job of fo- making us focus on just winning one game. So that was uh, that's my mindset going in towards the draft. Talking to Jonathan Holder. And, uh, Jonathan, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the minor leagues and about what's going on now in professional baseball. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield, talking with Jonathan Holder, pitched at Mississippi State from 2012 to 2014. Jonathan, we talked early on but about what you're doing right now, doing a lot of fishing, but from a baseball standpoint, you have to keep your body very much ready to play and ready to go at any time. What have you been doing to kind of get ready for a season that could happen at any time? Yeah, man, I'm, uh, I'm throwing – five or six days a week, two bullpens a week, um, facing live batters when I can and working out four or five times a week, just uh, 
doing all that as early in the morning as I can and then trying to hit the water in the afternoon and enjoy this beautiful weather down here. Jonathan Holder pitching Bart for the 27-time World Series champion, most decorated team in the history of sports, the New York Yankees. I know you're going to say something like that. Charlie is a huge Yankees fan, and I have to put up All with right. it every single week. Absolutely. Go Yankees, man, yeah. Yeah, normally I like to be down in Tampa and then uh, take in some spring training, but this year not to be, obviously. But we talk about guys as, you know, they play one role in college and then kind of develop differently. Early in your career in the minor leagues, you actually started a little bit, and I know you've had a couple of, uh, starts for the Yankees as an opener. How close were you to becoming a starting pitcher? You know, <clears throat> we fooled with that idea, and I actually did start for a full season. And I got to tip my hat to the starters in the major leagues and even in college. That, that is such a hard role to be in. And, uh, you know, we kind of got together as an organization, and they they thought that my role would be better going forward as a reliever. And I, I got to say, I agree with them. And uh, thankfully, I am where I am now. But uh, that, that year of starting was, was pretty tough. Talking with Jonathan Holder, and a few weeks ago, we talked to Chris Young, who is the bullpen coach for the Chicago Cubs. And Chris pitched here from 2000 to 2002 and was probably as good a middle reliever as I've ever seen at Mississippi State. And we were talking about the mindset of being a middle reliever, going from a starter. You were a closer in college. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a middle relief guy, and with the season being shortened, do you see even more of an emphasis this year on what your role is going to be? Yeah, you know, I think I think pitching is always the key, but I think if we're to have a shortened season, then pitching really is going to have to stand out. Um, middle relievers especially, because nobody knows uh, how long the starters are going to have to get ready to come back for a full season. So these middle relief and long relief type roles are going to be more important, I believe. Jonathan, Bart and I are friends with Marcus Timms, hitting coach for the Yankees. He's been around that staff now, around his hitters for four or five years, and obviously even came up through the minor leagues with a lot of those guys. You've got a new pitching coach this year. How is that kind of working, not being in the same place? What are you doing to kind of stay in touch and start to understand each other? Yeah, man, we, we're all on, uh, you know, group text, and we do the Zoom calls and stuff like that. Uh, Marcus is one of my favorite guys to be hanging around with. He knows so much about the game, and he, he loves Mississippi State. So, you know, my favorite time of the year is when college football is starting to get kicked off and we're in the clubhouse and being able to, to talk smack to the guys from, like, LSU and Ole Miss and all of them. You talk about Marcus Timms, and he's been the hitting coach now with the Yankees for a couple of years now. He was assistant hitting coach now under Aaron Boone as the head hitting coach. And like Charlie said, we all kind of grew up together. We give him a hard time when he comes into town. Everybody that I talk to, Jonathan, whether it be a Pat McMahon or anyone associated with an organization, they always talk about how much they think with the Yankees of Marcus Timms. What makes Marcus, and I hate to give him too much credit because he's such a good friend, but what, what makes him what he is in Major League Baseball? You know, I think what makes him good is he's always he's always learning. And you can tell over the technology change over the last three, four, or five years, he's adapted so well with it and the new age swing and all of this. And you can always see his mind working. And he's never closed-minded. He's always open to new opportunities and new ways of styles of hitting and such. And 
man, I really I think that's what keeps him at the top of the game is is his open mindedness. Talking with Jonathan Holder, and you mentioned a moment ago, new pitching coach, but you also lost kind of the leader of that pitching staff, CC Sabathia. Leadership standpoint, now you've got new guys coming in. You've got Garrett Cole coming in. But what's it like losing a guy like a CC Sabathia that had kind of been there, done that for a long time in the Bronx? Man, losing CC hurts. Uh, one of my good friends and, and the best, most competitive teammate I've ever played with. It, it's gonna it's gonna take a toll, but I know we have guys that are older that can stand up and and fill in that role until you know. I mean, we got Gardy there. Brett Gardner's one of the better leaders I've ever seen in baseball too, and he's been with the Yankees I think twelve or thirteen seasons now. So uh, we all we we look to those older guys a whole lot during during a season. You talk about the <laughs> locker room. You know, you've got some SEC guys in there. You think about the international focus in baseball now, but DJ LeMayhu, an LSU guy, you had Jordan Montgomery, Paxton, guys that have been around. I just want to know, how miserable was it being around DJ LeMayhu last fall with LSU having the season they had? You guys talk about football and that kind of thing? I'll tell you what, man. He he talks in smack, but uh, the way he hits and the way he plays, we just kind of let it slide. <laughs> Jonathan, before we let you go, and one of the things that we had talked to Kendall Graveman about is when you were in college, they made the change from the high-seam baseball to the lower-seam baseball in 2014, and now pitching in the big leagues, the difference in the grips of a baseball, how does that change and how has that changed your approach to pitching? Because when I watch you pitch, you don't throw that big 12-6 breaking ball as much as you used to. Yeah, man, I mean – that, that's one of the biggest adjustments, I think, between even minor leagues and major leagues is the baseball. The baseball is so much different in the major leagues. You know, I think it's a good thing that they did that for college guys to make it a lower team. Uh, but really, in AAA, they made it the same major league baseball that you use in the majors. So that, that to me, knocks out a lot of problems that young guys have coming up and trying to get, you know, get their feet wet in majors. Uh, that seems that's something you really got to think about and worry about. Jonathan, always great to talk with you. Don't be a stranger. Look forward to seeing you in Starville sometime soon. All right, Bart. I appreciate y'all. Thank you. Well, that's Jonathan Holder. Always great to talk with the pride of Gulfport High. And this conversation has been once again brought to you by our good friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. And when we come back, we'll talk to the Cowboy, Jeff Brantley, on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's time now for our guest line segment, brought to you each week by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Well, you know, Charlie, I've been trying to work out a good bit lately. Don't laugh. Stop laughing. You're laughing. And one of my favorite things to do is get some of those great catfish fillets from Heartland. You dust them with some seasoning, put them in the oven, and it's working. Can't you tell? Well, each week we feature great restaurants that proudly serve the best farm-raised catfish in America from Heartland Catfish. And this week we feature Ron's Catfish in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And the great thing about Jonesboro, you have Murdoch's as well, one on Red Wolf, one on Main Street. They're all phenomenal. 
and they all serve catfish produced by Heartland. So if you want buffet, head over to Ron's. If you want something quick through the drive-thru, you can go to Murdoch's, and you can't go wrong with any of them. That's Ron's and Murdoch's of Jonesboro, and they're serving the great catfish from our friends at Heartland Catfish. And let's go to the phones where former Bulldog Jeff Brantley joins us. Played at Mississippi State in the mid-1980s and now with the Cincinnati Reds on their broadcast team. And, Jeff, hey, we appreciate you joining us. We talked to Trent and Torsha last week. We feel like we've got all the backstories of 1983 to 1986. And what we feel like you have to do is you have to follow up and answer for a lot of things that Trent said last week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if I can answer that or not. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, let's leave 85 aside for a minute because we talked so much about that 1985 team. What were your big memories from 1983 and 1984? Um, 83, probably the biggest thing I remember was that's that's about that's when we were in we were in Texas and we we lost, but you know we we played well. Um, I remember playing in a regional in Austin, Texas. That's back when Roger Clements and Calvin Schiraldi were pitching for the University of Texas. I ultimately played with or against a lot of the guys that were on that Texas club once I got to the big leagues. You know, that's about the time that late in that year where Will really started to have an opportunity to play. Um, They weren't thunder and lightning, he and Raphael at that point, but um, they were getting there rather quickly. Uh, 84, the one thing I remember about that was the last pitch I threw that year. And it was a grand slam to Stuart Weedye, who is a Mississippi kid, I think he's from Ocean Springs, and he was playing for the University of New Orleans. And if we had won that ball game, we were going to the College World Series. If they won, they went. We went home, they went to Omaha. Not a good finish. Jeff, we talk about Clark, Palmero, Thunder, Lightning. You know, when I think about that 85 team, in the same breath that you would say Thunder, Lightning, it seemed like Brantley and Morgan. And you talk about just how dominant. I think you had 18 wins and – and Gene Morgan had 14. You obviously had really big years, 83, 84, and come back again in 85. You look at Gene Morgan in 84, just kind of a middling record, ERA around five, and all of a sudden in 85 he's got an ERA of like 2.28. He's winning. He goes 14 and two. I'm curious from your perspective, what was it that clicked? What was it that changed that made Gene Morgan go from being a serviceable guy to a, a frontline star? I think the biggest issue for both of us um, was having the just the repetition with Pat McMahon. Um, and I think it, it really helped Gene Morgan. I know it helped me. I think having the, the opportunity to, to get to, to that level of baseball, and even in, even in 83 for myself, it, you know, I pitched some, but it just wasn't the same. Um, 84 was as, as big of a learning experience, I think, for both of us. And 85, everything that we had learned uh, the year before, it just kicked into gear in 85. And I think that when you learn something about yourself and you start to pitch with a, a bit more passion and purpose, uh, things start to light up. And I, and I really believe that's uh, Gene Morgan learned how he was supposed to pitch. He didn't pitch like Jeff Brantley. He pitched sinker slider. And I was more four-seam, high fastball, and curveball. And, you know, it, it just gave us a, a, a great tandem because we were really opposites in the way that we threw the baseball. Talking with Jeff Brantley. And, Jeff, you, you talk about hosting regionals in the mid-1980s, 84, then 85. 
when we played in 1985, you talk about Michigan, who had Jim Abbott, Barry Larkin, and of course you play with Barry later on with Cincinnati. Did conversations ever come up, whether it be guys that you played with or played against? One of the things that was different about Mississippi State was that atmosphere in the mid-1980s. What were the, the thoughts and perceptions of people around Major League Baseball at the time when you were playing about you played at Mississippi State? Well, the, the guys from Michigan thought they were going to win the College World Series. They thought they were going to roll into Starkville and hand it to us like a silver platter. I mean, and they still thought that even when I was playing with them, Barry Larkin was there, um, obviously the shortstop for the Reds for many years. Um, and there were always times that we went back and forth. They lost. But the thing that they remember as, as much as they do losing that ball game was that the people in Starkville and just beyond anything that they ever played in front of, even in their own home ballpark. Jeff, we talk about uh, Barry Larkin. You talk about a Jim Abbott. I think back to that time frame. I love talking about state players who were here, but I also love talking about some of those guys who came through here, some of those other opponents. And I'm curious, you know, there's a pretty good outfielder from Auburn back when you were here. I'm curious what the talk in the dugout was when you see Bo Jackson walking to the plate. Obviously, he was a Heisman Trophy winner. Where was he as a baseball player at that time? Uh, he was he was very raw, uh, but he had uh, all of those physical tools that, that you saw in the football field. I mean, he could hit the ball a mile as long as he made contact. And if he hit the ball on the ground, if you didn't rush to it and throw it to first base with full velocity, you weren't going to get him. I, I know that that was one of the series that I think was awfully difficult for, for us when I, when I was at Mississippi State is we had gone to Hawaii for a trip, um, and we were over there for about, I think, seven days and playing at University of Hawaii and then University of Hawaii Hilo. And when we came back from that trip, uh, we went straight to Auburn. And obviously guys were tired. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of travel, even for, for a bunch of 18-year-olds. But we get to Auburn, and that's when Bo Jackson played on that club. And, and I can remember that, that we lost three ball games in a row there. I, I think it was the only time that year that, that we did not play well. And I remember Bo Jackson hitting a ball off of his hands that rolled kind of in between the pitcher's mound and, and the third baseline. And it was not really a, a, a bunt. It was a swinging bunt, but it wasn't right on the line. I mean, it was a, a makeable play. And Morgan came off the mound. He got to the baseball and did a crow hop and threw the ball to first. And as Will caught the ball, Bo Jackson was basically dusting off his pants. I mean, that's how fast he got down the line. And we're all like, oh, my gosh, how does that guy that big run that fast? And I, I, remember, I remember that because I remember him hitting a ball the opposite way and he hit it one-handed, and he hit it out of right field. And he hit it so far over Bobby's head that the ball hit right at the base of the wall of a building that looked like – the building looked like it was kind of right behind right field fence. But when the ball game was over, we realized that building was a good, good 75 feet behind the fence. And he hit it right at the base of it with one hand, and he hit it the opposite way. You know, Trent and Torsha said last week that the the reason that you guys probably didn't play that well at Auburn is because you had some extra weight in your bags bringing back from Hawaii. Some guys stole some lava rocks in the dugout. 
<laughs> we we probably did. <laughs> hey, early in the show, we talked to Jonathan Holder. And when he was in the minor leagues, he started one year in the minors before moving to the bullpen. Here at State, of course, you were a starter and then very successful in the big leagues as a reliever. Talk about the mindset, the mindset of going from the starting role to being a reliever, not just when you play, but what it's like today. I think the the biggest thing to to be a successful reliever is you have to be aggressive and you have to have no fear. And I would say that any athlete probably, in order to have some semblance of long-term success, you've got to figure out a way to, to motivate yourself where you, where you don't really involve that fear factor. Uh, nervousness turns into adrenaline. Um, you're always prepared. Uh, but, but I'll be honest with you, fellas, the reason that I was not a starter at the big league level, because I started all the way through the minor leagues. The reason I was not a starter at the big league level is I just could not pitch five or six innings consistently. I just couldn't do it. Um, I don't know if it was a physical thing, if it was a mental thing, um, but once I transitioned from starting pitching into the bullpen and stayed in the bullpen consistently, my career just took off. And I think I was much better off with that uh, focus on three to six batters than I was trying to go through a lineup for the third time. How much does the ability to develop pitches impact a guy moving from college to professional baseball? You know, in your case, I seem to remember a lot of talk when you were the Giants about developing a split finger pitch. What changed with you in terms of the pitches you threw and your willingness to throw them in, in any count in a lineup? Well, at, at Mississippi State, and, and, and it, could be, it could be very well true even today, um, in college baseball and really all the way up until double A, I didn't have to have a third pitch because I could throw a strike with my breaking ball or my fastball pretty much most of the time and didn't really have to think about it. All I really had to do was be able to, to make the pitch at the proper time, whether it was breaking ball or, or fastball. But once you get to triple A and you're facing uh, older guys that have been in the big leagues, uh, if you don't have something that is able to keep them from that 50-50 guess, uh, you're, you're going to be in trouble unless you just have supreme stuff. And by that, I mean throw the ball 100 miles an hour. And I just I had to figure out something that would move to my arm side. My fastball did not have that great sinking action. It didn't have the cut to it. And in order to, to have something that would move towards a right-handed batter or away from a left-handed batter, uh, I had to come up with a different pitch, and I, I couldn't throw a two-seam fastball. If I threw a two-seam fastball, it was straighter than my four-seamer, which is not normal, and it's not good. So once I came up with the split, it gave me just a little added, I guess you could say an off-speed pitch or a, just an added element that hitters just couldn't sit on one of two pitches. You know, the split finger was talked a lot about, and I'm not sure if it was because I was – developing as a baseball fan and hitting the age where I was paying attention or if the split finger kind of found its heyday back then you don't hear about it as much today as we used to you know I know Tanaka throws one and a few other guys but is is that my perception or are pitchers going away from the split finger today I I don't think we see the the split fingered fastball as as we would remember it Um, because I, I know what you're talking about and and there were a lot of cases, especially out west uh, with Roger Craig, who was my manager coming up with the Giants. 
uh, a lot of guys really split their fingers full and and got deep into the baseball. The hum baby days. Yeah, the hum baby days. That's exactly right. But having having that kind of depth with your fingers on a on a pitch is difficult to control. And, and I think as as we've progressed as a as a game of baseball, as as pitching has become more um, video and and technologically oriented, you're you're starting to see guys. They may split their fingers, but they don't split them with that kind of depth. They still split them with control or maybe slide the index finger off to the side a little bit, kind of moving towards a circle changeup. And, and I think you don't hear guys actually call their pitches a split finger when, in effect, they call it a changeup, but yet they're throwing it with their fingers split. So maybe terminology, it may be just the way that they think about it, uh, but ultimately it's a glorified changeup. Talking with Jeff Brantley, and Jeff – I worked a couple of years with Jim on the radio, and you're doing 70 games a year, and now Charlie and I and Matt, we do about 30 games a year with TV. We talk about the grind of being a player in Major League Baseball, but what about the grind of being a broadcaster? I mean, how does your schedule set up, and how difficult is it to to get those 162 games through an entire year as a broadcaster? I'll be honest with you, fellas. My my schedule has not changed much. Uh, from playing to broadcasting, you're you're still going to the ballpark early in the day. There's still a tremendous amount of, I guess, consuming information. Uh, and you did the I did the same thing pitching as I do now in order to talk about a guy coming to the plate or a pitcher going to the mound. You're you're still having to do homework. You still have to watch video. You still have to look up numbers, consistencies, all of the things that you did as a pitcher or a hitter, but yet I guess the, the best part about it is you're not sore the next day when you're a broadcaster. You just go home and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, Jeff, I uh, sometimes you think about the, the criticism, and obviously you're immune to this, uh, as a broadcaster is, well, that guy's never done it. That guy doesn't understand what we're going through. And that used to be the things that I would sit on the couch and say about broadcasters. Now you start to look in dugouts, and there's a lot more guys who are around the baseball game in terms of analytics and that kind of thing who themselves have never done it, who are now coaching. Where do you see baseball in terms of the the health of the game and the mindset of players in terms of wanting to hear from a former player and then this analytics-type movement that you mentioned earlier? That's a, that's a great question because I, I think that that's that's a topic of conversation within every locker room when the coaches aren't around. Uh, and I, I don't know that it's going to go away. Because any time that, that you have teaching and it's coming from a guy that has never been on a major league mound or in a major league batter's box or on a major league field as a player, there, there's always that, that little bit of question mark in your head until you're able to trust that guy fully. And I think that's really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to being a major league pitching coach or a major league hitting coach. And I think that the guys that have never played in the big leagues, or maybe they played in college, but they never got to the big league level, but yet they are experts in analytical data and being able to take that data and turn it into something that a player can understand. I think those are the guys that have really moved as fast as anything I've ever seen. I mean, when you're seeing college pitching coaches 
and college hitting coaches moving to the big league level or at the tops of their of the minor league systems of a lot of these clubs. Uh, it's just one of those things that they have to be able to communicate. Um, is it very different for a player? Boy, there is no doubt about it because it's something. It's ev- everything is new when it comes to that because there's not that same experience level from the coaches. But yet, a coach is not a player. A coach is a teacher, and if you are a great teacher, I don't care if you played in little league and that was it. You can still teach. Jeff, you are a guy that was just into the game and a competitor. And that's one of the things about when you look at baseball, and not to say there's not competitors today, but it was just a different thought process. It seemed you know, with us growing up that you had that strong competition when players hit between the lines. As a broadcaster now, is it frustrating at times or is it a situation of you just come to understand how the game has changed from a situation of back when you played, it was a big thing to strike out. Now it's not. Now, just about every time you see a shift on with a left-handed hitter, and back in those days you didn't see it as much, is it frustrating sometimes to watch as a former competitor to look out and see how the game is changing a little bit? I think that it is, and I think that it would be if if you were a fan that had never played the game of baseball. If you're a fan that would be um, over the age of 50, then – you probably have grown up watching the game a certain way. You, you, if you're over the age of 50, then you remember the days of, of Pete Rose, who could hit the ball the other way. If you shifted on Pete Rose, he'd have hit 1,000. And, and that's, that's the part that, that we all remember um, in growing up. The, the issue that you have now is there's a different perception of how to win a ball game. And it's more about if you have four swings of the bat, why not make one – a big fly, and you might have a couple of guys on base. It's a three-run swing rather than four singles. And I think that's that, That's just the way that baseball looks at it now. It's more about the, the biggest production that you can get for every swing of the bat. And whether that's efficiency or whether it's however you want to call it, um, it it's the way that we teach now. And, and we do the same thing on the mound. Uh, there's, not, there's not a day that goes by – that I don't look out on the mound in a major league ball game and think, how is that guy throwing the ball that hard? <laughs> and uh, I mean, cause I, yeah. I sat in the dugout <laughs> and watched Nolan Ryan pitch and I'm thinking, you know, he's throwing 95, 96 and these guys are throwing a hundred. And if you think about it in the day when Nolan Ryan pitched, guys did not want to bat. And now people are throwing five and sometimes eight miles an hour harder than what he did on an average day. So it, it makes you think, okay, well, this is, this is what is being taught. It's, it's a max effort game, but the skill set is so good and mechanics are so good that you're allowed to go max effort. Where in the days that we played, if everything was max effort, uh, you would have had a heck of a lot more injuries back in those days rather than what you see now. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to compare statistics. I think there was a year that Nolan Ryan had 28 complete games and did not lead the league. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a staff with 28 complete games in a given you'd year. You'd be hard-pressed to find a league with 28 <laughs> complete games. <laughs> the, uh, Jeff, one of the things about you, I mean, you're a Mississippi State guy. I, I see you at basketball games. I see you around at football. I mean, you are – 
you're around and still connected. I'm, I'm curious, as, as a Mississippi State guy and as a guy who stays in touch with college sports, where do you see the role of college baseball today? One of the things we're hearing, too, is about kind of the contraction of minor leagues. Are we going to see college baseball become even more important than it has been? I, I think that we're going to see, and we won't see it right now simply because of the COVID situation, and we're going to have a, a few years that things are going to get a little crazy in college baseball. But in the long term and in the long run, I believe that college baseball, not just in the SEC and not just the teams that go to Omaha, I, I think we're going to see more programs around the country that have great players. And I think that's all anybody ever wanted. You just want to have a, an even playing field. You'd like to have as many teams as possible to be able to have great competition uh, and not just have it in, in one spot, in one team or in, in one conference. Um, I know that there is going to be um, many teams that are taken away from minor league baseball that is only going to be an asset for college baseball. And I just believe it's going to make college baseball better. And, and in the long run, I believe it will make professional baseball better because I'm a firm believer that uh, you're going you're gonna to learn a lot more going to college than you are leaving high school and going directly into professional baseball. And, and I would say that all day, every day, does not matter who's sitting in front of me. Jeff, we appreciate you taking the time with us, man. It's always great to talk with you. All right, fellas. Y'all have a great night. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate you. Right. Thank you very much. Take care. Anytime. And that was Jeff Brantley talking about his time at Mississippi State and his time in the major leagues as a broadcaster. Charlie, i tell you what, we talk all the time about being a player, but going back to being a broadcaster every day, <laughs> he, we're getting old. We're getting older. And to do this for 150 times, 162 times, a ball game for us is not just showing up at the ballpark and doing a game and then going home. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it, the preparation, getting to the ballpark two hours before. And, uh, hey, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough deal. But I tell you what, you talk about a great ambassador for Mississippi State. Oh, man, there's none better than Jeff Brantley. He's a, we talked about this in the interview. This is a bulldog. I mean, this is one of another one of those guys, and how fortunate have we been on our show this year to be able to talk to former Mississippi State guys. And the thing that just keeps coming through is how much they value their time here and how much they value their continued relationship with Mississippi State. Hey, Charlie, good show, as always. Well, just another great day talking baseball with some really good Mississippi State guys. We've got a guy playing for the New York Yankees, Bart. That's always a good show. <laughs> Jonathan Holder and Jeff Brantley. It was a good uh, good show. We enjoyed it as always. Next week's our final one, our last show. And so we – Of this year. Of this year. Of this year. We're going to take a little break. Charlie's going to go to the beach and spend about two months down there. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau.